0: Today's episode, The Bat and the Weasels.
1: I've been suffering from insomnia lately. Mm -hmm. And as a result, what I've been doing is I'm finding myself doing a lot of reading throughout the night. Right. And I've recently picked up Aesop's Fables to read again. Are you familiar with Aesop's Fables? Did you read them as a kid? No, I never did. There's a lot of wisdom in there, you know, the, with, the, with the ass and the grasshopper, the lion and the mouse, the, the cock and the jewel, the pomegranate, apple tree and bramble. Like these are, you know, there's there's many wonderful fables in, in Aesop's Fables, and, and I'm enjoying reading them again, and and they're chock full of wisdom.
2: Yeah, I, I actually, um, I never really learned much from Aesop's Fables, but maybe that's because I never read them.
1: That might be it. I mean, I, I, I'm finding that they're certainly worth uh, picking up again. And and extracting moral lessons from them, but the the thing that's been that's been causing me um, some distress and uh, is is this one fable that I can't make heads or tails of, and I keep returning to it.
2: That's where I think I can help you because I have great moral clarity.
1: Well, that's why I'm calling upon you. Can I share with you the Aesop's fable of the bat and the weasels?
2: It would be my great honor to hear it
1: and to see what you make of it. Sure. Okay. The bat and the weasels. A bat was out flying one day, when he fell to the ground. Lying on the ground, he was immediately caught by a weasel. Okay. The bat pleaded for his life, but the weasel refused his pleas, telling the bat that he was, by nature, an enemy to all birds. Hearing this, the bat assured him that he was not a bird, but a mouse, a flying mouse. And thus the weasel set the bat free. Shortly afterwards, the bat, while out flying again, fell to the earth once more, where he was again caught by another weasel.
2: This is a different weasel?
1: This is a completely different weasel. Okay. Once again, the bat begged this other weasel for his life, explaining that he was in fact not a bird, but a mouse. But this time, this other weasel told the bat that not only did he hate birds, but he also had a special hatred for mice. Hearing this, the bat then assured the weasel that he was neither a bird nor a mouse, but a bat, and thus, for a second time, the bat escaped. Now, what, what, what's, what, what do you take away from that story? That's the whole story? That's the whole story.
2: I think the um, the lesson, It's I don't know, the whole thing is almost koanic in its complexity. I would really have to unravel what the point is, other than the fact that, and I'm just going from the hip here, is that it's not a very good story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that I find a little interruptive is that this bat keeps crashing to the ground. So I think that there's a problem with the bat, which I'm not sure if we're just supposed to ignore that for the interpretation of the story or not, but they fly, I believe using some kind of animal sonar where they make little cheeping noises and they bounce it off surfaces and they can somehow read where the ground is. So I'm going to guess for the purposes of this story, that this bat is either mute or deaf, but in some ways it cannot, um, locate itself properly in space.
1: Well, we know it's not mute, right? Because it's able, it's able to assert that it's a bat.
2: That's true. That, of course, also presumes some international Esperanto animal language where bats can speak to weasels. I would also say that weasels stand out in my mind in the animal kingdom as being not just clever animals, but weaselly animals, which is to say clever in a way that's devious. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the weasel made of its giant bat wings or its... Otherwise, that physiognomy that it was encountering, because weasels are not blind. So this weasel would fall into the category of a stupid weasel. Mm-hmm. I can't really make uh, heads or tails of that story. I think that um, I think what you have is one sick bat.
1: Well I think there's probably there's, there's got to be more to it than that. and, and, and I think I'm going to um, pick up the phone and try to get to the bottom of this thing. I'm going to enlist the help of a lot of, uh, a lot of smart people.
2: All right, well, best of luck to you, sir.
1: Nor a mouse, but a bat. And thus, for a second time, the bat escaped.
0: That's the end?
1: That's the end. That's the whole thing.
0: I, I find that there's no uh, moral because that's what life is like and life often doesn't have an answer or a lesson or a uh an end <laughs> you just go about your business in one night someone tries to do something to you and you get away one way and another way another night you get away another way
1: can, can you think of a time that you've done that in your life uh, escaped a situation by claiming to be a couple different things to suit different situations
0: Yeah, um, well, me, um, and I uh, escaped my mother, um, you know, hitting me or whatever by pretending to be more affectionate to her than I really felt. And then I escaped my, when I was with my father, I would escape him humiliating me by um, pretending to have more scorn for my mother than I actually had. And so I escaped the two people in charge of me by pretending I was opposite thing when I was on opposite coasts with opposite parents. <laughs> there was there was constant negotiation. So um, I can't really fault the bat It's kind of strange that the weasel is not trying to get dinner. He says he wants to eat it, not because he needs to fill his stomach, but he wants to uh, eat it out of hatred for a certain kind of creature that he's trying to annihilate. And then when he finds out it's not this creature he's trying to, to annihilate, then he lets it go, even though he could eat it anyway. I mean, I like to eat Cheerios every morning for breakfast, but if, if there were no Cheerios and, you know, an orange happened upon me, <laughs> I would probably eat it.
1: <laughs> and, and, you, and as you were eating it, you wouldn't be thinking, I hate this orange. Or like when you're sitting down to a steak, you're not thinking, I really hate cows, and that's why I'm especially enjoying this.
0: No, and when I go out, when I decide what to order in a restaurant, it's not what do I hate the most, it's what would bring me the most pleasure weasel.
3: What do I make of the fable?
1: Yes, John Tucker, what do you make of the fable?
3: Okay. Um, um, let me see if I can relate your fable back to a, a story of mine. Um a couple of years ago, there was this uh, little Shishto takeout restaurant about a block away from where I lived, and I used to go there frequently. And uh, After a couple of years, um, I realized that my friend Howard um, also patronized the restaurant, and we'd been in with uh, together and, and separately and all that. Um, what I noticed is that I'd been going there for about four or five years at that point, and um, they barely looked at me twice. They thought I was any other customer. But Howard, when Howard walked in, the place would just stop. And, and and they would cheer him as if he were royalty and stuff. Um, they would give him double portions, and they would ask him this, they'd ask him that. And you know, Howard's a very affable guy, and he has this reputation in many restaurants. Anyways, on one on um, on one occasion, I was going over to Howard's place, and I called him before I left and asked uh, if he needed anything from the La Chisco takeout place, which I was going to stop by. And he tells me what to get him, and so I walk in, and um, and uh, as, as I'm ordering, I uh, you know I see the guys just giving regular portions, so I just happen to say. It's for Howard, and they go, oh, Howard, we love Howard. Howard's the greatest, we love Howard. And, and suddenly, boom, he gets double portions, and then my little plate stayed exactly the same. So at this point, what I consider, I, I consider myself being trapped by the weasel with these small portions. You, follow, are you with me so far?
1: Trapped by the weasel?
3: Yes. So I walk in a, uh, a couple of weeks later, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm on my own. I'm just going to get a, a, a plate, a shished out plate, take it home, and that's it. Um, but I decide to, to say that this plate is for Howard again, even though it was not for Howard this time. It was just for me. I said it was for Howard. Boom. They doubled the portion right away, and I thought I would lucked into something very good here. Um, I was in to Kevin, you know, and, and I did this again um, and then again, and, uh, and I realized I had this sudden power and stuff, you know, uh, by representing Howard. They, I had special treatment and all that, and, mm-hmm. um, but eventually I stopped doing this because... Um, you stopped. Yeah, no, I, I, I stopped misrepresenting myself because number one, I was trying to gain mm-hmm. weight, and number two, uh, sometimes you just want to eat right in the establishment. You're hungry, you want to eat right in the establishment. And
1: that could be classy, yeah.
3: And if it was for Howard, I couldn't eat there, and I'd have to you know sit outside or you know, and, 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 it, and it snows a lot here. So eventually, I just went back to uh, who I was and sat in the restaurant.
1: How do you, now? How do you relate that story back to the to the tale of the bat and the weasels? You you, you pretended to, to be someone that you weren't.
3: When I walked in as a bat, they thought I was a bird. And I walked out of bat. You understand? Mm-hmm. It's, 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 the, the first time I actually <clears throat> represented myself again and sat down in the restaurant to eat with my half-portion, you know, my half-powered portion, which is equivalent of a regular portion, I looked at it and I said, this is the John Tucker portion. And uh, I was happy with that.
1: Well, that's a, that's a nice story. But um, but you realize it has absolutely nothing to do with the fable whatsoever. Hmm. You know, I have someone in mind actually who I think would be pretty good at this interpreting stuff. Um, and I think I'm going to give him a call. All right, I'll speak to you later. All right, thanks, John Tucker. Bye. Hello? Rabbi Pupko? Yes. It's Jonathan Goldstein speaking. How are you been, Jonathan? But a bat. And thus, for a second time, the bat escaped. That's the whole thing. That's the whole story. Okay.
4: Reminds me of a Batman episode.
1: Really? Yeah.
4: Well, bat in German is a Fliedermäuse, otherwise meaning a flying mouse. Uh huh. And Batman in German is known as Fliedermäuse Mensch. A lot of people don't know that.
1: Fly, flying mouse man.
4: Right. And we all know that, what Batman represents. I mean, that goes without saying.
1: What does he represent?
4: He's the prince of darkness.
1: Like like the devil? You said it, not me.
4: I think it's obviously, a, you know, a fable about the genius of survival. Mm-hmm. It's a tale about how the enemy wants to see you one way, but if you see yourself a different way, you can elude his capture.
1: Right. But in this story... Um... It just seems as though his admitting who he truly is right. is just another way of wiggling out of a situation.
4: No, the question is, it's a struggle for survival. Mm-hmm. Is, it a, is, is it a struggle that we engage in
1: mm-hmm.
4: while it's sometimes compromising our dignity and our authenticity? Or is part of the victory never compromising that?
1: Right, that's the question.
4: Yes. Yeah. In other words, how much honor does victory demand, or do we in fact ultimately honor those who survive by their wits, even if it means compromising and diluting truth and dignity?
1: What do you think?
4: What do I do I, I believe in dignity? I would always err on the side of honor and
1: truth. I'll try to at least: if, if for a moment you imagine yourself as the bat, how would this have played out differently?
4: If I'm the bat, I would be well, how, I
1: would be dead. Because?
4: Uh, because that's just generally how I conduct myself.
1: <laughs> I would be a dead bat. <laughs> why, why, why is that?
4: Because I would not pretend to be something I'm not. The weasel would come to me and tell me that he has the sworn enemy of all flying creatures, and I would say, I am not only a flying creature, I am also a mouse. In fact, I am not a flying creature or a mouse. I am a unique creation of the divine. I am a flying mouse, otherwise known as a fleetermoise. A bat. A bat.
1: And that would have been the end
4: of you. That would have good me. Because... No one enjoys people who talk like that.
1: I like that. I think um, I, th- I think that's very helpful. All right. Um, I just have one more guy that I think I'm going to call here on my list. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine who's a professional writer. All right. I think he might have a, an interesting take on it. All right. I appreciate it, Robert. All okay. right. Okay, thanks so much. I'll talk to you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
5: as they say in the magazine business, what's the takeaway? What are we getting from this? Two weasels go into a bar,
4: Mm
5: -hmm. a bat is the bartender. Mm -hmm. One weasel says, I hate birds. The other weasel says, I hate birds and also mice. Bat says, good thing I'm a bat. Let me ask you, is that a funny joke?
1: Uh, n- n- not no, not no, this. it's not is it yeah, I mean, I think yeah, so it is
5: a terrible, terrible fable, no, I'm saying any fable, mm-hmm. like any joke, would have a kernel of sort of instinctive truth to it that you could that you would react to and res- that we would respond to on some level, the same way I want a joke to be funny, I want a fable to give a moral lesson, what's the moral lesson, mm mm-hmm. And it's just makes no sense
1: but it's it's sort of do, do you think maybe in some ways it's sort of refreshing that that it isn't so moralizing as you know that the you know the bat the bat gets his in the end or something
5: That's not refreshing no A guy calls me on the phone and says, "I want to read you a fable. I'm ready for a moral lesson. I suspect this is something that Aesop probably probably threw away no. None of it works. None of it works. I wouldn't include that one in the book.
0: Hello?
1: Is this Laura Gibbs? It is. Laura Gibbs, you're a scholar of ancient Greek. Mm-hmm. You, you've recently edited together a new collection of Aesop's Fables for the Oxford University Press. Yes. And you teach Aesop's Fables?
6: Um, I do, actually, because I teach mythology and folklore, and I also teach some Latin and Greek also, and I use them as uh, texts for uh, studying the languages, too. Uh,
1: the, re- the reason I'm phoning is because uh, I- I've been reading Aesop's Fables lately. Excellent. And most of the stories um, make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm able to extract a moral lesson from them. Right. And it's very and it's satisfying. It is. Well, um, I've been calling around to people to get their take on a particular fable um, that I've been finding completely uh, perplexing, and um, and I and I get a lot of different, inter- like wildly different interpretations of it. Mm-hmm. You, you know either that or i or people just you know telling me that the fable is completely dysfunctional so I felt like at this point in my quest I had to consult with an expert
6: So which one is it I'm so curious the
1: the, the fable that I'm talking about is the fable of the bat and the weasels yes does that surprise you
0: well i
6: in in a sense it it, it doesn't it, in, yeah in fact it's it's not one of my favorites on its surface is kind of impenetrable at first.
1: Yeah, not even just on its surface. If I've got this right, it sort of says that it's wise to change your spiel, sort of, your argument according to the situation. That's a part of being wise, in a way. It's not really a story about championing truth-telling.
6: Exactly, and that's what's so fascinating about the Aesop's Fables is that it's a way of telling a story, but it doesn't represent one philosophical or moral system. You use the Aesop's Fables not to learn the truth in some kind of objective sense, but to bolster your argument. You've kind of already decided what you want to argue. Hmm. Aesop's Fables were originally very popular, say, with lawyers in the ancient world, and we have these handbooks of Aesop's Fables uh, that are indexed for the moral so that the lawyer, based on whichever side he's on or whatever point he's trying to prove, uh, can find the animal fable that will work for him. Very practical stuff.
1: So you, you would actually have like lawyers saying stuff like, Your Honor, let's turn to the case of weasels versus bats.
6: Right. It's a pretty useful moral that you should just basically pretend to be whatever you need to be in a given situation, um, to say whatever you have to say to get out of something alive. When so many of the fables preach the opposite of that because many of the fables from the ancient world were used in order to uh, promote uh, the slave culture that was a fundamental aspect of ancient Greece and Rome. Hmm. So over and over and over again, there are these fables about don't pretend to be something you're not, don't aspire to be more than you are, settle for your lot in life no matter what it is, you cannot be everything you want to be. But here's a fable that has a special role in the aesopic world because it says, oh, no, you can, in fact, successfully exploit the ambiguity of your identity, um, and you should do that if you need to.
1: So it's sort of an anomaly.
6: It is. It's much more likely to find a fable that says, no, whatever you do, don't pretend to be something other than what you are.
1: So, are you, I mean, is there something that you're able to learn from the bat?
6: Well, I guess it's reassuring to me that there is at least one story out there where multiple identities and ambiguous identity is an advantage.
1: Where two-facedness is celebrated.
6: As soon as you say it like that, two-facedness, that's very loaded, isn't it? So, you know, flexibility, adaptation, you know, that's very positive. But as soon as you call someone two-faced, they're done. They're finished.
1: This idea that great stories are timeless, and that a lesson then is—you know—if if there's wisdom to it, is still a lesson now. But I mean, in in reading the um, the fable to you know about a half a dozen people, hmm? it, it it seemed like in some ways like that there, there was um like there was a cultural resonance that maybe that was specific to that time that's so remote from our experience that it made me wonder whether there comes a time when a fable has to be retired.
6: Right. Well, and and that happens. Naturally, because stories really only live or die based on people continuing to tell them and retell them, and so a completely artificial venture, like the one I engaged in, which is to you know find all these bits and pieces of the ancient world and translate it and put it into a book I mean that's meaningless in terms of the life of that story. that story is dead, you know unless somehow you know someone you told it to tells it to someone else, who tells it to someone else, in which case it comes alive again. You know, so a story needs legs.
1: And this is how we keep them alive.
6: Exactly. They, they You know, b- b- being put in a book, that's the coffin for the story. Hmm. And one of the sad things that happens, too, is that you probably noticed a lot of those fables are kind of boring to read. I mean, they're not well told. And that's because the text that preserve them are really notes for a story. They're not an actual storytelling performance. They don't have dialogue. They don't have hmm. voices. They don't have gestures. And by and large we're not very good storytellers anymore. Whereas in the ancient world, storytelling was one of the major forms of entertainment. That was a beautiful art in the ancient world, and we've lost touch with that profoundly. So in a certain sense, all the fables are, um, if, if not dead, very, very decrepit compared to the kind of life that they used to enjoy.
1: So do you think maybe the time has come for someone to pick up the bat and the weasels and perhaps maybe, you know, polish it off and... Um to sort of retell it?
6: Oh, I think that would be a fabulous thing to do.
1: I, I might actually take up that task.
6: Outstanding.
1: The Bat and the Weasels. Back in those early days, bats were a relatively new item. Back then, The world was mainly filled with your basic animals, cows, horses, goldfish. This was because animals were generally a pretty conservative lot, and so mating between the animal groups was largely frowned upon. This meant that interspecies creatures like centaurs, pegasuses, platypuses, and bats were a very rare and new thing in the world. They were the spawn of only the most radical and forward-looking animals. Two such radical forward-looking animals were a free-thinking pigeon and an ontologically-minded mouse. After a brief courtship, they birthed a son. No one knew what to make of him. Maybe we messed up, said the father, looking at their newborn's long, thin, black wings, which slowly opened and closed. They raised their son the best they could. His mouse mother teaching him to forage, and his pigeon father teaching him to fly, counseling him to fly at night when he wouldn't be seen. When other animals asked their son what he was, he would usually avoid the subject of species entirely and simply say with a wink, I am Francois, for that was in fact his given name. Sometimes animals would laugh at this bit of wit, but other times they would shake their heads knowingly as though they could smell some aberration. Francois had other problems, too, ones that were not merely a matter of social concern. For one thing, he did not know what to eat. His father advised worms, but like his mother, he had a predilection for cheese, which caused problems when he took flight. Bloated with cheddar, he would oftentimes fall upon the ground. It was in one such moment, after plummeting from the sky during a late night flight, that he found himself captured by a weasel. Weasels are the natural sworn enemies of birds, said the weasel instructively, looking Francois dead in the eye. I am not a bird, Francois said. It felt funny saying it, like he was being disloyal to his father or something. Then what are you? Asked the weasel, squeezing Francois more tightly. He could see the weasel was not one for wit, and so he wisely decided that his Francois joke might not go over, and so he tremblingly answered that he was a mouse. Satisfied, the weasel released him. Francois beat his shaky, sweaty wings, and once again he was in flight, desperately trying to make his way home. But because of his nerves, it was not long before he crashed again, and was again captured by another weasel, and yet again held hostage. "'I am not a bird,' said Francois preemptively, his eyes squeezed tight in fear. "'I am a mouse.' "'I'm funny that way,' said the second weasel. "'Not only do I hate birds, but I also have a special contempt for mice. I don't know what it is. They just creep me out.' François, his eyes still squeezed shut, sputtered and stuttered. Finally, opening his eyes into little slits, he spoke. I am a bat. The word just popped into his head. Bat. It didn't even make sense to him, and he could hardly believe that he had said it. The weasel loosened his grip and looked at François with wonder and not a little fear. The weasel slowly inched backwards, not knowing what to say, suddenly unsure of his own hatred. The sun was slowly rising in the sky, and Francois the Bat took a running start and glided into the air. It was the first time he had ever flown during the day. It felt strange, but good.
0: Wiretap today, you heard Gregor Ehrlich, Lisa Carver, John Tucker, Rabbi Reuben Pupko, John Hodgman, and Laura Gibbs, who can be reached at asapica.net. Wiretap is written and performed by Jonathan Goldstein and produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Sarah Gilbert and Carolyn Warren. Production help from Mira Bertwin-Tonic. Reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap.